Hello and welcome to episode 50 of the Gaming Moguls podcast. The only podcast where everything old is new again. Matter of fact, we're going all the way back to episode zero and re-recording our About Us episode so that we have something that doesn't sound like a Tori Amos album. (gasps) There was so many breaths. (laughs) I don't know why we were so out of wind back then. I don't know either. And by the way, that other voice here alongside me is my millennial co-host, Mr. Jacob Kloppenstein. Hi, Jake. Hey, Mark. How you doing, bud? (gasps) Good. (gasps) That's great. I'm happy to hear. We so for those who haven't listened to episode zero, we don't recommend it for one. That's why we're remaking it. Well, no, 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 we do because we do. this is going to be the new episode zero. Correct. But the original version, the vintage version, only for the truest listeners, we used a weird compression thing how we used to record, and it really amplified our breath noises, and we don't know why. Yeah, it's we were still figuring all of this out, and it was an episode that we don't know we really ever intended to be let out into the wild, and. And we ended up doing it, and there were some audio problems with it, like everybody has on their first episode, and ours just managed to survive for 50 episodes. But the beauty of it is, if you're listening to this now, it's gone, and you're never hearing it again. <laughs> never, ever. What's the goal of this episode, Mark? Why don't you just walk us through what we're going to be talking about this lovely evening? This is going to be a very different episode than a lot of the other episodes that we did, and we thought it was sort of the perfect thing to do now two years in. Because we've learned a little bit more about ourselves, and this is the episode that we're going to get a little bit introspective for once, and we're going to turn it back on ourselves. We're going to tell you a little bit about ourselves. We're going to tell you about the podcast and why we exist. We're going to tell you about our personal tastes in games. For what reason, Jake? Uh, I, I don't really know. There's no reason to anything. What our tastes are and why we oh, like yeah, that, the things we do that so that they help. can put everything in context? I guess, yeah. Yours is better than mine. <laughs> Oh, you'd think we'd get good at this after 50 episodes, but no, you you get us as we are. You would think. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun to have a more conversational episode, a little bit less what we played this week, and kind of more highfalutin as we are lowfalutin boys. It'll be fun to do that. We've got a bunch of topics lined up. Some of these are going to be rehashed from our episode zero and re-recorded because I don't know about you, Jake, but my tastes are definitely different than they were two years ago. Oh, yeah, dude. Oh, yeah, they have definitely changed, which is fun. It's 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 fun for people to acknowledge their taste of change. And I feel like so much in a review world is trying to be the same as always and always viewing things through your lens. Maybe your lens can change. And that's great. I'm laughing at uh, all the things that we talked about. It's like, well, I truthfully have never played that. And now it's one, you know, among our favorite games, we've played it a lot or the other side where, oh, by episode 10, we're going to play that. And I'm looking back at episode 50 going, still haven't played, played that. It. Yeah, <laughs> we've gotten better at not promising stuff like that. That's for dang sure. Yeah, so certainly our things have changed. So even if you were somebody that listened to our original episode zero, I promise you this will be an entirely new listen for you. And we updated it with quite a few new things because, again, we learned a bunch of things in the last 50 episodes. Wonderful. So why don't we start with our brief introduction of ourselves and a little bit of personal information about ourselves, Mark. You first. Great. My name is Mark Teske. I'm about 50 years old, live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. About, about, might be on the wrong side of that one. Hereabouts. Hey, that gives me perspective to call you my millennial friend. There it is. Because I myself am a Gen Xer. And I live in a suburb of Minneapolis, St. Paul, just outside of Minneapolis. And uh, for those of you that don't know, there's a little kind of a double joke built into the gaming mogul's name in that we're both avid skiers and have been in our life and kind of that we're the funny little podcast from the great white north and what says uh, moguls like a good ski run there it is yeah i'm a commercial photographer by trade i'm married i have a son and a daughter that are 
both, uh, let's see, my son is now 14 and 12 is my daughter's age. And the beauty of that is all of us as a family are very avid gamers. My wife, Heather, I cannot beat once she's learned a game. And she proved that to me vigorously last weekend playing Yokohama. My children are now to the point where they regularly play four weight games on board Game Geek and don't even realize that they're heavy games and regularly beat me at it. So <laughs> as frustrating as it is to be beaten by your teenage children in heavy games, I'm very proud of that fact as well. Jake, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, guys. I'm Jake Klopfenstein. I currently live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, however, my wife and I recently bought a house just in a first rig suburb right outside of the downtown area. So I am no longer going to be an actual Minneapolis denizen. I will instead be a Minneapolis area denizen. So I will move to the suburbs and be everything I didn't want to be when I was young. Which office are you going to to turn in your hipster card? I don't know. I don't know if I can give it up. It's been just <laughs> existing for so long. It's be a hard part of me. Um, I'm 27. I will be 28 in three weeks from now. My wife, Anna, lives with me. She's uh, wonderful. She's not as gaming focused as you and your family is, Mark, but we certainly have been known to get some games played together. I definitely think my gaming experience is a little different than yours because I think I actually have a better perception of an average normie gamer than you do, even though you play with your kids so often for the exact point you just mentioned. Your family has <laughs> gotten so accustomed to systems and four plus weight BGG games. I feel like sometimes we argue on what we consider to be streamlined, easy entry weight games because your operative rating is so much wider. Not saying it's better or anything. I just think your kids are really good gamers and you haven't been exposed to like a 14 year old who, who doesn't know how to play games versus I play with those people all the time. A big part of my gaming history has been my family. My extended family and I all own a cabin up north, um, which is a very common thing in Minnesota. And so my entire youth and life now, pretty much every other weekend, we all go up, all 30 of us. And so I'm playing games with everybody, my uncles, my grandparents, my parents, my siblings, and just kind of that's where my gaming love really grew out of. So that's my gaming history. So Jake, with a family gaming like that, what got you into gaming? What, what games did you start with and how have you got to where you are today? So I think for a while, Wizards of the Coast had a, a, a marketing campaign that was called My Uncle or something like that, like Uncle Teaches You. I can't remember what it is, but my story exactly that. I have an Uncle Kirk. He will never be on the podcast, but is always mentioned on the podcast, both of our Uncle Kirk. He taught me D&D back in the day. And because of that, I love that we ended up kind of pivoting to board games after we'd played D&D for so long, just as kind of a faster thing that was a little bit less work and less up. And I think it was 2006 or seven, right when Dominion came out, he brought that to a Christmas. And I think that's literally all I did the entire Christmas with family members was play Dominion over and over and over and over and over again. And ever since then, the dial separating between board games and RPGs for me has always been so much more into board games with a little bit of dabbling into RPGs, but I'm so much more into board games. One other little side bit about me is in high school, quite a long time ago now, I was very into a tabletop game system called Warhammer 40k. I think I played in fourth or fifth edition. Can't quite remember what specific one we were playing in at the time. I could show you all my rule books, but that was a huge part of my life back then. And was probably one of the most important things to me in my high school and kind of early college career. But it was too expensive, too time consuming, and I ended up moving on to board games. Very cool. My journey was actually remarkably similar to yours. Like you, uh, I grew up right smack dab in the middle of the satanic panic of a 1980 when uh, if you played Dungeons and Dragons, people legitimately thought you were sacrificing goats in your basement. Or at least that's what parents thought was going on. <laughs> 
In reality, we were nerds having a great time in the theater of the mind, and uh, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons back in fifth and sixth grade and pretty much did exclusively that all throughout my high school career. When I got into college, that shifted more into things like Battletech, so miniature combat games. I had a group of friends that was very into playing things like that, so a lot of Battletech back in the day, and Boy, that all changed on one blizzardy weekend in about 1994 when I got snowed in in Fargo and my friend who had been pestering me to play the dumbest game I had ever heard of where you like had this deck full of spells and you'd cast them at each other. I finally realized that we were stuck in a small apartment for a weekend and that, okay, I'd try (laughs) this thing called Magic the Gathering and (laughs) the rest is history. The rest is history. Yeah, that was a boy. I went hard into that deep end. I think we played for 48 straight hours and uh, for about the next 10 years, did (laughs) nothing but play Magic the Gathering, played just tons and tons and tons of it. Your love for Magic the Gathering is nearly as old as me, by the way. Did you know? Uh, I know. (laughs) I was born in 93. So I was was a year old when that fateful uh, snowy Fargo trip happened. That is hilarious. Well, and it's amazing that it's been around for that long and it's still as relevant as it's ever been. Right. I'm not into it anymore. I really don't. I don't have the collection I used to and so forth, but I definitely have fond memories of those years playing the Magic the Gathering because somewhere in the early 2000s, I was introduced to a little game called Acquire. And this kind of blew my mind. Simultaneously, I had another friend, Phil, who was going to Settlers of Catan tournaments. And he said, well, I don't know if you'll really like this. This is pretty complex. (laughs) (laughs) Which I laugh about in hindsight. Phil's still a very good gaming friend of mine. And really, my love for board games exploded probably about four years ago when I got talked into going to a weekly game night where I met Jake and started coming every week. And since then, the two of us have become great friends and the rest is history. Yeah, it's been fun. We have a great gaming group located right here in Minneapolis. We usually play at Fantasy Flight, but in the last while, we ended up kind of pivoting to different locations. So it's just so fun to have a standing group of people so willing to play. And I think the numbers at one point were like up to 40 people. Yeah, and it, uh, it it ebbs and flows depending on who's in and who's out and so forth and what yeah. group of friends they bring along with them. But we definitely make a point of it being a, uh, hey, it's everybody's group and you know what type of games the group likes to play. So as long as that's the kind of games the crew is willing to play, then uh, welcome aboard. Absolutely. Now that you know who we are and what we're about, why don't we talk a little bit about what the Gaming Moguls is besides a funny pun about skiing? We're not going to reference back to the first episode much more in this episode, but we do have to call back to the point where it's fun to go back and do this and talk about what it is rather than what we'd like it to be. Because when we recorded episode zero, it was a lot of the, hey, what we're probably going to do is, and what we may do is you may see us. Whereas now we can look back and we can say, this is what we're about. This is what we talk about. And this is what you could expect in episodes 51 through 100. Agreed little conversation about what are we about. We at the time realized that there was a niche for a more experiential, aspirational gaming podcast. What did I mean by all those buzzwords? Well, experiential, meaning that it wasn't a discussion about something new that came out, like all the review podcasts are doing. And aspirational, meaning that, hey, we're trying to expose you to new games that you might not have heard of. So this podcast at a very high level is our experience with games that we would consider to be step-up games, Jake. Do you think that's an accurate description of what we're about? Yeah, I would agree. I think we're more about the experiential than the aspirational, but I do believe that there's a, hey, you should try to 
grow more within the gaming hobby, whatever that means for you. And it certainly means something for us because I think it's kind of, you're also getting the aspirational growth of us as an experience in the podcast, which sounds so buzzwordy. The gaming moguls experiences, hey, follow us down the rabbit hole. And uh, I think we've done a pretty good job of that in the first 50 episodes. Now, there's some upshots to all of that. One of the upshots meaning that we don't do reviews, just plain and simple. Now, you could argue that our chatting about what we thought of a game is a review, but not in the traditional what everybody else is doing form of reviews. Like, again, we're not talking about the unboxing. We're not talking about the production. It's literally the, hey, we played this and we own it because nobody gives us anything. Let's be honest. Let's let's clarify. We have never received anything for free for this podcast and never will. Well, let's not say never, Jake. Come on now. You you might. I won't. You can get uh, all the free stuff. I, <laughs> I have too many games as it is. Because of that, these are games that either we or one of our close friends personally owns, and we have had a chance to sit down and play games just for our own enjoyment. So that means that we're completely free to say whatever it is that we want about it, good, bad, or otherwise. But being quite honest, Jake, I don't play too many games I don't want to play. How about you? Yeah, and I think that's a big thing we wanted to start off. This is more of a reflection of our gaming group. Mark and I used to start with this conversation after we left the game night, just kind of digest what we had played, right? And that was so fun to be able to just kind of think about what had happened. And that's a big part of the fun at conventions. If y'all finally meet up after having 10 people kind of doing different things today and talking about the games, that is something that we weren't able to find as much in the thing, because it seems like most board game podcasts are either really topics driven and kind of more about shaping the industry or really review and kind of somewhat frankly take this as you will consumerist where they're really driven towards the selling of the product and the the qualities of the product and or being a critic and mark and i aren't super interested in doing that we just wanted to kind of talk about these games and see how our opinions will grow and evolve over time which especially if you do in a review model isn't really allowed to happen I do sometimes wonder how many uh, weekly clicks we're giving up by not doing that, Jake, because let's face it, the new hotness is popular. Yeah, but I mean, hell, you can look at our uh, Kickstarter list and see how few games we have that are the hotness now. (laughs) We're the Kickstoppers, not the Kickstarters. We're the Kickstoppers, yep, yep, yep. And what we're allowing you to do, basically, is to be a fly on the wall of our midnight parking lot conversations, because oftentimes that would be be 24 degrees, because we're in Minnesota. And we'd be standing out in a dark, cold, icy parking lot at Fantasy Flight, chatting till about 2.30 in the morning about uh, how cool we think the first player token was on that particular game that we played last at the end of the night. And we would right. be able to riff on that for hours. And right. we, we finally realized, hey, why don't we just record this and let other people like share in our conversation? Exactly. And it's fun. I mean, I obviously let us know if there are other podcasts that do this, but from at least the ones that we've listened to, it's just nice to just have it be so much lighter and more about what you've played and not having to have it be a piece of work. Just what what would you play this week? It's fun. As a result, we kind of have the freedom to explore some niches that maybe podcasts that are focused very much on the cult of the new don't get to do with. We are very much cult of the old and exposure to the old hotness. Doesn't mean we're not geeked about new games that come out like everybody is, but we're more likely to talk about a game from 2014 than we are about a game from 2020. And so a lot of those games have maybe passed into uh, maybe not your collective consciousness, right? These are games that have sort of fallen off. Uh, Our most recent game night online Wednesday night, we had people demanding to play Power Grid because they hadn't played it in five or six years. I love that. Versus always having to play whatever's the new game that's like Power Grid, but you haven't played Power Grid in four years. The difference there is that that new game might be good, Power Grid's awesome, yeah, we, <laughs> and, and it's provenly so. Absolutely. 
And I thought it'd be interesting to just kind of have a different perspective of a board game podcaster versus someone who's so entrenched and intrinsically pursuing the new games. Yeah, for sure. It also gives us the freedom to talk about things that may not even be games. Like we also get into some game adjacent topics, whether that's uh, accessories that go with your game or whether it's uh, just other hobbies you can get into, like making things for your games or how your game group is organized or how your collection is organized. These are all things that you can absolutely expect us to continue talking about. One other thing that's kind of interesting that I guess was our invention. However, I don't know. I don't feel like we invented it. I feel like we <laughs> just I, saw it somewhere and, and and decided to use it. And it's it's funny because it's so obvious in hindsight that it's honestly garnered a little bit of strange life of its own. And I don't know that either of us thought that that would happen, but I've I've seen it in the wild more times than I ever expected it would. And that's, agreed. That's something we came up with back in geez, our first ten episodes. I, I'd have to go back and look, but it was a very early episode. We came up with this notion of the mogul scale because you and I were having conversation about how difficult a game was, and we kept having to re-explain, well, is it heavy because of the rules or is it heavy because of the decisions? And it suddenly dawned on us as we were prepping for one of our episodes that why don't we make that a two-dimensional scale so that we could have a different dimension for both the heaviness of the rules and the heaviness of the decisions. Right. And that became the mogul scale. Right. And we just wanted this assay to be a test to, for us to talk about games. It was not supposed to be something to like codify and assign numbers for games. It was just supposed to be a way for me to quickly discuss with you about Brass Birmingham versus Brass Lancashire or something along those lines. It was supposed to be a quick way to discuss the rules versus uh, strategy weight versus actually a assigned thing. But it ended up being a good information to assign to games. And so we just kind of kept on doing it. And thank you. We've gotten a few shout outs for some other of our podcasts that have uh, found it also a good way to talk about games. So I always do a double take when I'm driving down the road, listening to another podcast and they say, well, on the mogul scale, this would be a three C. Gotcha. <laughs> Thankfully, it hasn't happened that many times. So we don't have to do it that often. But yeah, no, it's it's cool and it's fun. And uh, we should be better about and we not meaning we is the collective we Jake. Jake needs to be better because that is my job to put him into the spreadsheets and I've not been, but I'll be better. For what he's talking about, if you go to GamingMoguls.com, there's a tab up on the top that shows where we've rated the games. And to help you understand that a little bit, like I talked about, we put it into two dimensions. There's a one through five axis, which is how crunchy are the rules? How thick is the rule book? How tough is it to understand the rules? Then there's an A through E, which talks about how difficult the decisions are. So a one E game has very few rules, just mind-breaking decisions to make. Yes. Conversely, a 5A is a game that has just loads and loads and loads of rules, but has the complexity of tiddlywinks. Most games fit somewhere in that zone. Like uh, your common average Euro, your midweight Euro, probably going to be a 3C, about the middle of the rules, about the middle of the strategy. And it all branches outward from there. Absolutely. And we even talked about each quadrant of the moguls in past episodes. So feel free to listen to those. We stopped and we broke down each one of those episodes in there. And uh, I'm specifically talking about episodes 35 through 38, where we talked about each one of those four quadrants, whether it's heavy rules, light strategy, heavy rules, heavy strategy, et cetera, and what each of those meant, what types of games are in there, what hallmarks of those games exist inside each one of those quadrants. And, you know, those were fun episodes to do because... Man, not everybody agreed with us as it turned out. <laughs> yeah. Did you, could you imagine that things are subjective? Who would have imagined? Honestly, the most controversial one that I didn't think of it at all 
But the, the, the most controversial one was the one that was the episode 36. Is the juice worth the squeeze? That was the episode where we talked about lots of rules, little strategy. And it was hard to do that one without it being derogatory. Right. Even though a lot of our games exist in that space, like I would say D&D exists there. I would say 40K mm-hmm. exists there. And those are two things that were incredibly well, Jake, Jake, important. Jake, 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 Jake. There's a lot of strategy in D&D. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> but I mean, I, I don't know. I think people took it as a, as a, as a negative thing to not have a lot of strategy because we're strategy gamers and we've got to be smart. You know, no, we're moving around bits of cardboard or plastic around a board for fun. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Don't take and it's okay. so seriously. Right. All of these can exist. They all have different things to offer to different people. And it helps the conversation when you hear about a new game to be able to categorize it so that when you explain it to somebody else, they can look at it and go, okay, maybe that one's not for me. Or, but it sounds like it might be right up my alley. It's an easy way to talk about that. So you'll hear us reference the mogul scale in virtually every episode. Because of that, I wanted to stop and take just a little recap on what that actually means. Wonderful. So let's continue to talk about our favorite things ourselves. When we talk about some of the special um, niches that we found ourselves in the game world, I'll go first this time. I have become very, very, very passionate about train games, almost to a fault. I like to try them out. I don't know what it is about them because I'm not super into train history. I think I just really like maps and I like cubes and I like shares. I've always liked financial games, even back when I was playing normie games, more kind of uh, Euro games. I was always gravitated towards the one with money, the ones that try to simulate some sort of economy. I find that very fun. And those definitely have come to the peak at 18xx, which is absolutely my favorite game system. And most of my favorite games exist in that system. I also say that I think I'm almost the normie gamer of us two when it comes to like Euro games. I think you like heavy Euros a lot more than I do, but I think I like like Mm -hmm. normie like Azul. Like I play Azul a lot in that kind of category of games because I play with family. I play with a lot of extended family and a lot of people that aren't gamers, whether it be my friends, my friends, wives, my friends, husbands, stuff like that, partners all along those lines and younger folks. So that's, I think, kind of my territory where I think I hold it down between us two, Mr. Teske. Yeah, you certainly have influenced my tastes in that as well, because there are absolutely normie games that are fantastic. Normie meaning uh, I, not in a derogatory fashion, right? It's a it's something that's a little bit lighter and maybe a little bit more mass market focused. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. Maybe the games that you'd see at Target more or if like I can't tell you how many times I get texted each year for people around Christmas time asking for gift ideas for their cousin or whatever. Yeah. And that kind of places I feel like where I operate. Not party games, not really light strategy, abstract games, something like that. Just kind of like pretty mass market. Most people are going to like it. Those kind of games. Yep. Boy, certainly having somebody be my uh, spirit guide through that market certainly saves a lot of time and money because <laughs> There are a bunch of games in there I'm not interested in playing, but the best games in there are some of the best games in the world because they're great games. Right. Like Arboretum exists in that category. Azul exists in that category. That kind of stuff is what I'm in reference to. And those are games for the ages that virtually anybody will enjoy playing. Agreed. My special niche, I would say, is I'm the Euro guy. I got mocked heavily the first time we did our top 20 games because I think 14 of them were Uwe Rosenberg games. Yeah, it was something uh, ridiculous. (laughs) <laughs> Uva Rosenberg games. I, I do love a game where I've got a bunch of cubes that I'm pushing around and I'm trying to be efficient about it and convert some kind of cube into another kind of cube, uh, generally involving some ugly dude that's trading in the Mediterranean. Hook me <laughs> up. <laughs> that's my kind of game. Love. Yep. But that's my background, right? I, I, I will always have a fond taste for that kind of game. 
but I've certainly have realized that there are games in that niche that are worth it. And there are games that are in that niche that are forgettable. And the best games in that one are games that I could play over and over and over again. And I need to focus more on those. My other special niche that I really find an outsized amount of joy in is small box games and in particular small boxed import games. Like, man, there's nothing that makes me happier than a delightful little tiny card game from Japan that just has my brain hurting. And it's nothing more (laughs) than a simple card game with a five minute rule teach and really hard to find. And I have the joy of introducing it to other people that sit back and go, wow, it's an amazing game. Where do you get that? I love everything about that little hobby. Uh, Generally speaking, they have really great graphic design too. And an interesting look that's different than an American game. And I'm just over the moon about. I'm also a big fan of Japanese board games, small box games, pardon me. Not as much as you, but I most certainly like them a lot. We both have huge Oink games collections. And depending on a flip of a coin, I think you could say one of ours is better than the other. I don't quite know whose it is now because I have a couple that you don't have and you have a couple I don't have. I think so. Although I think I've given you the ones that you didn't have for Christmas. So you might be ahead. Dang, we're tied up. (laughs) We are certainly tied up. But yeah, they're just fun games. It seems like the Japanese art style is kind of different than ours. Really clean. It seems like the gameplays even kind of follows that ethos as well. Really clean, really easy to parse and just good, you know, just good stuff. They're good games. If you look at those four things, euros, trains, normie games and small box imports, That's a pretty good cross-section of what you're going to hear us talk about. There it is. Exactly. What you're not going to probably hear us talk about? You're probably not going to hear us talk about miniature latent games very much, because neither one of us are really into that. Kickstarter crap. No. We don't talk about D&D here either, which is funny, because we both play D&D, which is interesting. No, certainly would be up to having an episode on that one just for a change of pace sometime. But uh, we we did actually talk about it in one of the episodes where we kind of just did a little side note and just say, hey, we play this. Here's what we do. Yeah, it's just weird because I don't know if it fits in with the same flow of our other podcasts, but could be wrong. We're also most certainly not going to talk about war games. That's another big glaring hole of games that we do not like to play. I like them. I just don't have anybody to like them with. So I end up not really playing them. Yeah, I don't have time to play the Euro games that I know I love right now. And I certainly would be up for trying that, but I tend to not like very dudes on a map kind of games. So I don't know that I would get the enjoyment commensurate with the amount of time it would take to learn and get into that kind of game. Although, having said that, that you could probably find some game about submarine warfare or something like that, that I just went, oh, that's pretty neat. (laughs) So I can't I can't say that there's nothing out there. The last thing you probably will hear less of us talking about is, I would say, pure abstract games. And uh, we recognize them for all that they are and all that they mean. But it's just not really something that gets us that excited. Which is funny because I really like the way they look, but I don't like playing them. I went through a phase where I was trying to really like all the GIPF, G-I-P-F, I think is oh, how you same, spell it. Same, same. I own several of them as well. And I thought I'd like them. I just have this idea that I'd sit down with all these little colored discs that feel nice and enjoy playing them and all these geometric patterns. And I think I just end up liking them for their clean lines and I don't really like playing them. You know, no, I, I tend to I tend to not like games that are overly chessy, that are very, very, very thinky and dry. I don't I, that doesn't really spark joy in me in gaming. So. I found a pretty fun thing to do. Back in the day in Reddit, they used to have these meeple of the week kind of interview thing, and it was a bunch of binary questions. So I think it'd be fun to go through each one of these binary questions and choose which side of the team we're on and kind of explain to the listeners what our biases may be and our tastes. Gives us a bit of a uh, gaming thumbprint, if you will. 
Exactly. No two answers will be the same. However, I do think we're going to agree on nearly all of these, <laughs> except for like two. But you've played a couple, that, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear your answer. So as a good transition, do you care about theme or mechanics, Mark? Oh, we just talked about this a couple seconds ago. I wonder. It's almost like we planned it. We're so good at this. I know. What a great transition. 50 episodes in, best in the business, Jake. Best in the business. Theme versus mechanics. I very plainly have a preference towards mechanics. It has to, if it's got a really delightful, brain-twisting, clever way about doing something, even if it's not necessarily good, sometimes I value clever more than good. (laughs) But as long as the mechanics are interesting, I can certainly sacrifice a theme that either is non-existent or non-interesting. But there has to be some theme. I don't want to play just a pure themeless mechanical game, I've realized since the last time we did this. Jake, how about you? I would absolutely agree, but it doesn't mean that I don't appreciate the theme. Like a good theme can go well, but I think there's almost like a third category that I care about more than theme, but is very important to me. It's the presentation of the game. And I don't mean like minis. I like a very austere, normal, well-designed, good-looking game. You know, like I would so much rather play a new published game by all board games versus whatever they did with uh, the 1830 through Lookout Spiel. Yeah, the mass market produced versus the uh, cleaner production style of AAG's typical style. I, yeah. I can absolutely see that. It's almost like the umami of the game. Yeah, yeah, if you will. It doesn't have a, an, an intrinsic way to describe it. And I don't like when the games get overproduced, aside from a few, few situations. I like a pretty austere game, but I just like, I, I like them when they look nice. I would agree with that. And if a, if a game is going to be fancy, I kind of want it to be me that made it fancy in the way that I like it to be fancy. Agreed versus them telling me how I want want to like it. Moving on to the next one. Do you prefer long or short games, Mr. Teske? You know, that's a tougher question to answer these days because I definitely have come to a new appreciation for a short game that packs a wallop. And I have a special place for that. But I think ultimately, if I were going to list my favorite thing to do, it's a uh, what I would call a event game. It's something that you don't get to play very often. and you sit down for several hours and you battle it out and it takes several hours for that story to play out. Uh, that, that Those are some of my favorite experiences in gaming, whether that's a train game or a big fat bloated Euro. I love the longer game. I guess my answers were departing from each other more quickly than I thought we would. I prefer short games. I would much rather play multiple games on the evening, like multiple sessions of a single game or more variety in a game night versus playing one game. However, the big starking contrast there is I am obsessed with 18xx games, and even the shorter ones of those usually clock in about two hours, two and a half hours. So I guess it depends on how you define short games. But to me, I usually am more interested in playing the smaller game of that category than the bigger one. So for example, I would usually rather play 1846 versus 1817, for example. Well, and I would also say, you know, if I've got five hours to play a game, I'm I'm probably going to pick three 90-minute games in that five hours rather than one five-hour game most of the time. Now, that better not be a 90-minute game that takes five hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess the question is, what do you define as short or long games? That's so hard of a thing to answer because of the fact it's such a group and a time window dependent because certainly, you know, if I've got an hour to play, I'll play three or four short games and have an amazing time as well. I actually would define you as being someone who likes games that are two hours and 30 minutes for a Euro, which I think would be defined as a longer Euro. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. I feel like a lot of the games you really like are that kind of length. 
they're not super long. They may be three hours if they're crazy and you're dragging on, or maybe three and a half if it's really, really, really slow, but they're definitely not faster than two. Yeah, because to get that length of a game and to keep it interesting, there has to be a uh, a lot of things to sink your teeth into, and it allows you to really explore the strategy that you're doing in that game. Agreed. And I think I might be known as the person who plays a lot of 90 and sub 90 minute games in our game group. Yeah. Would that be fair? Yeah. Or, or am I perceiving this wrong? No, 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 for sure. And there's absolutely a time and a place for all of those things. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I, I think we're team play games versus team. What's the link? <laughs> there's a shoe for every foot. Absolutely. OK, so the next question on the list, Jake, is uh, I would say quantity versus quality. There's this notion of a 10 by 10 list that play 10 games inside of a year, 10 times. We're going to take that a little more extreme in both directions. Jake, are you a 20 games five times or a five game 20 times or something else? I am exactly a five games 20 times guy. This has been recent in my development, but I'm so what you said earlier by saying power grid is a known quantity is a huge thing in my gaming world right now. I would so much rather not risk the gameplay with a game that some nobody at the table knows because somebody bought it on Kickstarter or just thought it looked neat. I would rather play a game that somebody knows at the table they love and most likely I will love too. Usually it'll probably end up being like a seven by like 15. I don't know how the math works out there kind of person, but between my two options of 25 times or five games, 20 times doing the five games, 20 times. How about you, Mark? I'm somewhat notorious for being Mr. 150 by one. You know, I don't want to do a 10 by 10. I want to do 150 games one time. Having said that, I think in reality, what I'd want to be is the 150 by five guy. You want to play a lot and play them a lot. Yeah. And nobody like I don't have that much time and very few people I know do have that much time. So I tend to choose variety over quantity because I bore of things. And man, there's there's a lot of good games out there, right? There aren't only 10 good games in the world. There's unfortunately there are so many games out there right now. There are thousands of games that you could objectively say are really good. I have a thing where I want to experience all of them sometime. See, I think it's funny. I would absolutely for 2021 select with you 50 games that are the only 50 games we'd play this year. And I feel like that is like panic inducing for you. (laughs) So it's funny. If you wanted to do that, I would probably sign up for it. It would cause me a lot of stress to narrow down what those 50 I'd want to play were, which would which is actually harsher because in reality, we're going to like agree on probably 30 of them. Right. And so we get 10, 10 each, right? We get 10 each uh, and that that would drive me crazy. I think that would be awesome until about June. And then about June, I would just look at this ever growing stack of angst in my closet (laughs) that hasn't been touched in six months. Just going, I'm a good game too, Mark. Come play me. And I'd go, man, I really miss playing Aura and Labora. I haven't played that in a long time. I really want to play Aura and Labora, but it's not on my top 50 list because it's not in my top 50 games, but I still really like it. That would start piling up throughout the summertime. I wouldn't want to play my top 100 games. I just want to would arbitrarily select the 50 games I'd have for a year. I also would very much like to not play any new games for an entire year. No new to me games. Even if it's I played it once five, 10 years ago, it'd be fun to circle back to all of them. Just no cult of the new all year. And weirdly, the way the last year has worked out, there just there weren't any 2020 games that really got either one of us that excited. So it. It's been incredibly close to that. Oh, well, no, no, even even beyond that. Just no, no new games, no new rules. Like you've played oh, this game sometime before. I see. Only it's not a new release played. game. It's no. a only. Because mm. we say that we didn't play a lot of new games this year and we didn't do a last year wrap up because the year was weird. But 
I still ended up playing nine new games from 2020, which asterisk some of those were 18xx games that we played in like 2019. So very old. And then, but I still played like 80 new games to me, not new games as in new games released in 2020. Yeah, I don't have an exact count for what I did, but anytime I'm picking a game, there's I always have this mental tug of war between the, hey, I'd really like to play this again, and hey, I really want to try that new game I haven't had a chance to play yet. <laughs> and I, I fight with that literally every single time I pick a game out. Now, oftentimes what ends up winning the war is the game I played before because I know the rules. And that new game, I may not know the rules for, and I, generally speaking, will not cold teach a game occasionally I will, but for the most part, I need to prep it if I'm going to pull a new game off the shelf. Yeah, I, according to BGG or BG stats, pardon me, I think I played 40 new games. So I was, I was lower, but that's still a lot of new games for a pandemic year. I think in order to successfully do that for me, Jake, I think I would have to have two years preceding that, that I did not buy any new games so that I had a chance to uh, clear the shelf of shame pipeline, if you will. So I know this isn't on the list, but I think another fun question is, it's more of a fill in the answer. How do you define your shelf of shame? Is it based on <laughs> operations manager or experiences? Yes. Isn't that are, how we are, you, are, are you a warehouse manager, meaning that you have something on the shelf that is unsold? Or is it about an experience that you've had? And I think I fall on the experience. It doesn't matter if I've played my copy. It's not an expenditure. It's based on whether or not I've ascertained if that game is playable and good. I used to have a very strong warehouse manager idea that if I had unsold stock on the shelf, it was inventory that counted against me at the end of the year. And I've gotten better about that. I don't quite, you know, think that way that I'm kind of okay with not having played my copies. And in fact, there are a few games that I own that I've played a bunch of times and I own them just for the collection aspect of it. But still, if I have an unplayed copy of my game, even if I've played somebody else's of it or played it online. Makes you wonder, why do you have it? that does cross my mind yes <laughs> absolutely that does cross my mind so yes i would say i've moved a little your way as well because there's a lot of games that i really like that i'd definitely give like a seven or eight that i'm fine with not owning because they're on your shelf and that's fine and i think you have to be at least a little bit warehousey to have that occurrence happen for sure i do have angst about games that are sitting in shrink wrap even if i have previously played that game at some point i mean there's a few games that I was given copies of that I have played before that I have not played since I was given copies of them. <laughs> and, and it bothers me every time I open up the door and I go, oh, I kind of want to play that. But I don't know the rules to it off because it's now been three years since I've played it. <laughs> well, yeah, there it sits. <laughs> so moving on to the next question, I think these next three are really, really, really easy. Are you a Euro or Ameritrash kind of player? Quick definition. Most of you, I'm assuming, know what this means. Uh, Euro games are lots of wooden cubes and converting things in efficiency. Ameritrash tends to be more miniatures, theme-driven, and chucking dice. Uh, I am very much in Camp Euro. I can't even tell you the last time I played Ameritrash game. No, me neither. It's been a couple of years. I have some friends that are very into it, and they're they're very passionate about it. And they quadruple down on the theme to the point where they make very elaborate sets for all of their games. And, you know, that experience is neat of itself. But when I play with them, I enjoy it for the experience of playing with them, not the game itself. Right. Moving on to the next question. Do you prefer competitive games or co-op games? Another easy question that we oh, both agree on. Oh, yeah, Jake. It's almost as if we made an episode called Co-op Games That Don't Suck. Oh, wait, we did. Oh, yeah. We, did. <laughs> we don't like co-op games. We're very not interested in them. 
I like to compete. I think we both are very gracious winners and losers. But for me, a co-op game just feels a little bit too much just like you're moving paper around. Yeah. Well, and I think that co-op games in many cases have devolved into shallow carbon copies of Pandemic. And like, I don't need to keep playing that game again with a Cthulhu theme or again with a natural disaster theme. Yeah. Calling in with an aliens invading theme, you know, the calling of the deck that you draw a card each time and something happens is kind of annoying. Like that system. I've played that game. It's called Pandemic. (laughs) Been there, done that. And so many cooperative games follow that mold. So if I look at the cooperative games that I do like, none of them follow that mold. Like, I absolutely adore the game The Grizzled. I always have. And that couldn't be farther from Pandemic. Right. Actually, I think I can nail it down. I'm 100% down the competitive versus cooperative. But I like cooperative games that are closed hand cooperative games. Closed deck, closed mouth. You can't share information And it doesn't follow the pandemic theme. There's a few games out there like that. And those are great to play. Absolutely. I like some co-op games, especially if you're playing with the right group. But very similar to your Ameritrash explanation, I'm not enjoying the game. I'm enjoying the experience with the people I'm playing the game with. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Having said that, my number one game of of all time is a uh, co-op game that's competitive. (laughs) We'll get to that in a little bit later. This is a, a, a follow-on, Jake, to the Euro versus Ameritrash. Cubes or minis, Jake? Easiest answer in the world. I prefer cubes. If it was up to me, I would have very, 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 very few board game components be made of plastic. Yeah. The only plastic I really like are those geek group kind of jewelry kind of plastic versus the printed mini kind of thing. Yeah. And there there is a time and place where it's appropriate to that. Like uh, in Gloomhaven, it's nice to have nicely painted miniatures of your dude. But having said that, I'm glad the rest of the game wasn't all miniatures, that it was stand-ups. But um, I would certainly prefer a uh, jigsawed cutout piece of wood for my micro rather than a high-resolution 3D printed thing. And um, I'm going to give a quick shout-out that's going to give you a quick convulsion. I'll even take the train meeple over the cube. (laughs) (laughs) But that's because I'm a game terrorist. I like the little trains in something, but it doesn't make sense thematically in a lot of these games. It's actually weird because it Side note, it makes the most sense to put the little locomotive on the links in 18 in Age of Steam. Pardon me, not 18 something. But like compare that to like Chicago Express. It makes no sense that there's locomotives just next to each other the entire way. <laughs> if we were going to be completely honest and what we're talking about is this is an ongoing battle that we've had throughout many episodes is in train games like Age of Steam and Chicago Express. There are options to play with little cubes and there are options to play with little train engines, depending on which game you're playing. And in fact, in some games, you have the option for both. But if we were going to be honest, Jake, marking a route should be done with a stick like it's done in bus rather than a cube or a little train. Correct. We should agree on that. Correct. I, I would actually 100% agree on that one. So I always laugh about the disc versus train. I'm like, well, neither one of them make any sense. So correct. <laughs> you should you should really be able to color the tiles. This should be the correct way. Yes, exactly. So we're now going down to uh, styles of game a little bit more and If you're looking at games that are victory by conquest versus winning by a certain number of victory points, I mean, one one kind of implies one type of game and the other implies another type of game. Jake, where are you in the victory by conquest versus victory points camps? I think I'm in the it depends camp. Unless you actually look at statistically the games I like, then it's 100% victory points. However, I think the question, there's also a question here. Would you rather win 
let's say there's a game and you just haven't supposed to have the most points. To me, it's still a victory by conquest. If you do something that makes your opponent lose nine points and you only gain two versus you gaining 11 points and them only gaining 10 points. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. To me, that still feels conquesty, but really, I like victory points. I'm just trying to say I like interactive victory point games. And a corollary to that, Jake, would be that uh, is 18xx a victory by conquest or victory points? I think I you can make an argument for either. I think you could. I do think it's more victory points, but they're very interactive victory points that are earned from each other by like taking. Sure. And, you know, certainly rusting the trains away or tokening somebody out of an area is absolutely a victory by conquest. Agreed. What about you, Mark? Well, I'm Mr. Euro, so I probably ultimately have to uh, say that winning by victory points is probably my favorite way to win. Victory by conquest is a little bit too much dudes on a map correlation to me in a lot of cases. But, um, you know, it really depends on the game and how it's themed out. I certainly have favorite games that are in both of those camps. Agreed. Moving on, this is a little bit more personal. In your game shelf, do you store the games vertically as like a book or do you store them sideways like stacks of books? <laughs> that was not a good comparison. Do you store your games vertically or horizontally? Sure. I am I'm in team vertical and uh, there's a specific reason for that. It's that I don't like having to pick up several games to get a game out. I don't like, you know, hey, it's the fifth game down in the stack. I got to remove those four games just to get that one or do I have to pull these slide it out quick and hope the three games on top of it don't explode as I pull it out of there? It also is the most optimal use of space on my particular Correct. game shelf configuration. Now, having said that, there's some downsides to it, right? I mean, if a game do lid doesn't fit tight, suddenly now all the parts fall all over the place. And as a result, oh, I'm going to hear a bunch of people cringe here. I love game sleeves on boxes. I said it. I said it. You're the one <laughs> don't person. Me. Well, and that's because I store them vertically and it keeps my... Flipping games from falling apart. Well, it's because you you have a long shelf and very few people in the board game yes. can world yes. have long shelves. They have compartmentalized shelf. It seems like everybody has a Calyx, which is what I have, which we'll talk about me in a second. because I love to talk about me. I have five, eight feet long shelves. Correct. And so if you have that, that makes sense. You could either also just put in heavyweight things every once in a while. I'm actually going to be the contrarian here and say I do not prefer either. I prefer hmm. storing games in the most optimal way for that game. So, for example, I have a I lot of games it. that I store vertically and I have a lot of games I store horizontally. Depends on the cube, depends on the category. I would say I'm more opinionated on putting games by games that fit box wise. So, for example, I store all my games by publisher or by type. So I have like all my 18xx games by each other because they're kind of the same. And then I have all of my like fantasy flight games in a corner. I have all of my midweight euro games because they're all the same size box. I do all that is what's more important to me. I have all the 12 by 12 by two and a half boxes on one shelf, all yep. neatly lined up by publishers and by game type. If there's sequels to the others, I have a, a shelf of Uva Rosenberg games that are all lined up because they actually form a continuous picture. If you put them by each other, it's delightful. Awesome. Um, yeah. Not, I don't know if you ever noticed that or not, but if you put all of them side by side, they make a continuous mural. And I have all my train games together, again, kind of sorted by publisher and so forth. So I, I, I absolutely do that as well, Jake. And, just that I they're pretty consistently vertical. Yeah, I think technically, if you look at it, I am more vertical than I am horizontal. But once you run into too much space on a Calyx, it makes the most sense if they don't fill up the whole length, if they're the euro size box to put a stack of them horizontal and then put a few on the side as well. That's usually what I end up doing for my euro game. So there's a place for both. Want to know what really makes me crazy? What? When you have a box that needs to be stored vertically 
and you have a sleeve for it and the sleeve doesn't fit. So then you have to store something that doesn't completely close vertically and you can't use the sleeve. Perfect. Love it. Win, win. Snowdonia, I'm looking at you. <laughs> it's the best of both worlds, man. And by that, I mean the worst of both worlds. <laughs> Indeed. Well, as we're talking about, shall we say, sleeving something, Jake, what about the things inside the box? Those cards. Do you sleeve all your cards, Jake, or do you just uh, leave them exposed to the elements? I do not care about wearing out my games. There is a handful of cards that I card games I do sleeve. So, for example, like trading card games. And that's mainly just because it's easier to shuffle that way um, with with uh, riffle shuffling um, where you mush them together. Not riffle. What's it called? Mush shuffling. Uh, I call it shuffling. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. We take the half and you shove the corners. And if they're sharp corners, it works better. However, for pretty much all games, aside from a handful, they're not going to get worn out enough where I'm going to care about it. And if they are going to get worn out, like game, like Arboretum, that's great. I'll buy another copy of Arboretum. That's cool. If there is some weird circumstance where the game's both very well, the cards are really well like touched and it's not replaceable, I might sleeve, but it's so rare. Yeah, deck buildery style games are about the only thing that I sleeve. Things where you're just every time drawing you know, holding, fingering, putting them down, drawing, shuffling, drawing, shuffling. If those cards are getting touched a lot, and a lot of times with deck builders, there's like a starting deck. And those cards get the living daylights touched out of them on there. And pretty soon you get to the point where you start, they start accumulating marked wear on the back where, you know, hey, that one card that you always play with has really white edges on it. So you can always tell when it's sitting on top of your deck. That's right. this. That's the case where I'm absolutely going to sleeve that thing. But if it's something where you literally only like, you know, you buy a card once and put it in your tableau and never touch it again for the rest of the game. Who cares? I'm not going to sleeve that one. Oh, here, here comes an interesting hot take. I would rather sleeve the game when the white edge got exposed after that white edge just got exposed with opaque back sleeves versus sure. sleeve the game from the get go, which sure. I do yeah. not think most people would agree with. <laughs> I would rather retroactively sleeve versus proactively sleeve. Yeah, it's just I'm I'm I think what I'm stating is that I'm making a judgment call on is this a high wear game or not? Oh, agreed. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. If it's a high wear game, I'll probably proactively sleeve it, and if it's not, then I won't worry about it. Right. Cool. Another thing we mostly agree on. There are some people though that sleeve every one of their games. Isn't that weird? Sleeves aren't cheap, Jake. I mean, no, unless you're doing the money. penny sleeve things, right? I mean, it's and those are awful. Ugh. You're adding another ten dollars to every single game on your shelf, and that adds up for sure. So the next one. Caverna versus Agricola. I think this may be where we detour from each other as well. I am a Caverna guy. I think both of us will agree that our answers to this one is are 60-40 at worst. Agreed. Yes, it's slightly, but I'd still play the other. I still like both. What are you? I would certainly take Agricola over Caverna. It's, you know, I but again, I would not fault anybody for picking the other one. Uh, I personally think the endless variability inside of Agricola and the fact that I've got a couple dozen plays in me and feel dumber than the day I started is <laughs> a feature, not a bug. I do not believe Cavern is a better game, though. I just like it more. I might even argue that it's a worse game. Oh, that's a fair take. Yeah, but I like it. Yep. Uh, nostalgia has strong and I know uh, Caverna has got a very strong nostalgic feeling to you as it does to me. And yeah, you know, that you certainly can't fault somebody for thinking that. All right, then our last question, which is going to be the last time that I reference episode zero, but it has to be because I don't think you played Race for the Galaxy at that point in time. And no. You still haven't played in person, but you have played online. So I think you can actually answer this question, which is fun. Looking back at episode zero, we asked the same question. And at the time I said, I've never played Race for the Galaxy. I've played Roll for the Galaxy a lot. 
but I've never played race. And by episode 10, I'll have, pl- I'll, I'll make a commit to playing race. And I still have never played race in person, but you've played the app. I played the app. Yep. And that's, that's close enough. I, I would have to answer roll myself just begin because I've, I've played like three times race for the galaxy and I've played like 30 times roll for the galaxy. And so certainly roll is the, the game for me. I am the same, but also is the same reason before. I think I might argue that race is a better game, but I like roll more. I just, th- there's so many cards in race and they're all, there's so many different expansion. There's so many rules. It's like, it's, it's too much. I like where roll is, even though it has a new expansion that I've not bought. I just like how it exists currently. And neither of these games are easy to teach. Oh God, no. Oh God, no. But I played, I, I play both of them a lot. So. And roll has the, that, that amazing tactile nature to it. We love touching the dice. It's the loudest game ever. That's going back against my plastic thing. I guess I like dice in games. Dice can be plastic. That's fine. I prefer that. <laughs> and, and noisy plastic cups. It, every time you play, you have five people going. We should put metal there... cups in there just to be really mean. <laughs> the How do you get kicked out of the game store? Right. That and, that and setting up a 50 feet of pitch car. Mm. <laughs> All right. I've seen that too. Speaking of games that we really, really, really love, why don't we go over our top five favorite games? But before we do that, we literally just spent the last three episodes, not the most recent one, but the one before that, discussing our top 20 games. So if you really want to see what our top games are, go listen to those. These are just a quick abridged version just to be a little bit more cohesive in this episode. Depending on when you're listening to this, we don't know when we're going to get around to re-recording this episode again. Presumably it's a living document. So We'll probably redo this again at some point in the future, but the most recent top 20 that both Jake and I did were episode 47 for myself and episode 48 for Jake, where we break down at great detail what our top 20 favorite games are and why they're there. But, you know, we're going to give you a quick introduction to that, and we're going to spoil it if you haven't listened to that already and talk about what our top five favorite games. So, Jake, let's throw this back and forth, going five down to one. What do you say? Perfect. I will start first with one of the many train games here. 18 mechs, one of my favorite games. It's fast. I like the train rush. I like the geography. I like all the companies. They all seem relatively viable. It's fun. Yep. Great game. 1830 variant and uh, one that I've played several times over the past couple of months. Mm -hmm. My number five game is uh, eh, sort of a train game. (laughs) There are trains. trains. There's also canals in it. I think number five, technically speaking, is Brass Lancashire. I'm actually going to, I called it the Brasses because uh, five was Lancashire, six was Birmingham. And I love them both much as I love both of my children, but for different reasons. So number five are the Brass Games by Martin Wallace and a host of others. These are functionally perfect games. But they're only top five. So the, num- the ones above those must be perfecter. I think, I, I think you could argue the top five are all pretty perfect. We'll see. My number four is 1846, very well numbered with a four in there. It is a really, really, really good race style. You got to get to the spot. You got to get the most money. You got to get the most money. You got to feel. And then all of a sudden the game's over. You, you feel like you hardly started going. Um, I, I love it. I always feel like I can get better at it. I feel like I've not uncovered every one of the stones underneath this game that is just so wonderfully designed. Um, not very, me, my millennial friend. I have it mastered. You do coming in last place every every opportunity you can. That's a great, I guess you've mastered last place. Correct. <laughs> it's a fantastic game, and I'm so bad at it. Yeah, it's it's hard to get good at. Um, so that's 1846. <laughs> a, that's a great choice. It's a fantastic game. That's my number four, 1846, by Thomas Lehman. 
I think I have a high respect for games that I suck at. Yeah, I feel like we're gravitated towards games we're bad at. Like, I'm pr- I'm really good at midway Euros, and I, like, rarely play them. My number four absolutely fits in that category. What a tra- What an unintentional, perfect transition. This game is, again, nigh perfect, and I'm so bad at it. <laughs> it's Age of Steam, which is an amazing game. It's a vicious, brutal, little root-laying and economic game that you actively feel how much it hates you. And that just keeps me coming back for more. And there's a thousand different maps for it. So you can always keep on playing it. Endless, endless gameplay. Uh, Age of Steam, whether you have one of the old versions or one of the new ones and the whole pile of maps, there's a reason there's entire conventions for just this game. It's amazing. We love Age of Steam by Martin Wallace and some other peoples. And John Bohr, if you ask, depending on who you ask, I think BGG just says John Bohr now. My number three is Gaia Project. I'm a big fan of Euro games, and this is my favorite Euro game. It's just amazing. It's It's got amazing resource conversion. I like the theme being in space. It's made of plastic, which is, I contradict myself constantly, but it works really well in this game, and it's just, it's fun to play. It's just a game I'll never turn down a play of. Jake, if you had half a brain, you'd give that to me for my birthday. Oh, because then you'd like to play it? <laughs> that would be my favorite game too <laughs> see I've, I've i've hacked a lot of games like that like i buy you things that i i think you're gonna like but also that i kind of want you to drive because sometimes you don't but like it, it when i drive a game it, and it, it works. works every time <laughs> i mean i don't know if you saw our most recent christmas present but santa monica was definitely that calculus you know i want mark to like this game and i want him to want to play it i will buy him it perfect yep that uh, works completely so i can add that to my terra mystica and just complete the family absolutely my number three, I referenced earlier in this podcast, my love for all things Uva Rosenberg. And to me, this is the gem in the crown. It's a little game about a fishing village in France called Le Havre. It's a simple rule set and endless gaming possibilities. It's really hard to do well in this game. It's hard to win consistently. And to do so, you have to play multiple times and develop mastery about all the different combinations that can come up. It's a favorite of mine. I absolutely love playing it. And uh, I know, Jake, this is a of the Uvo Rosenberg games. This one's high on your list, too. It is. I just love how emergent the gameplay is. And I feel like it's something that you learn as you go is something that designers do not try to design anymore. And Lahav is a perfect example of you learn as you go. You'll figure it out. Yep. My number two also has a two in it. I am very good at this. Wow. 1832 The South. It could is number three, too, Jake. It could have been. It could have been number one as well. But I'm saying I'm good. These coincidences are fun. This game is set in the South. It has a really cool railroad history. The map is probably my least favorite part about this game, but it's still fine. It's got really cool privates in it. And it has the best thing, which is systems. When you shove systems together, you can make, usually in these games, to make like big companies, the 10 shares. Sometimes you have to grow up minor companies or have two minor companies merge. But then usually once they're 10 share companies, they don't do anything. They're just, that's how they are. On this game, you can merge them together to form a 20 share system. And it's really cool. I really like that. It's my favorite 18xx game. It's awesome. I'm always down to play this one. Uh, great choice. I just wish it was on 18xx.games. Yeah. Hopefully, with 1828 being in there, maybe they have like something coded for systems. So we'll see more systems games. But I don't know how things work in the background there. 1832 is so good. It's so good. Another thing I realized I like in 18xx games. I like when majors have fun little quirky powers, and this one has that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. You know, versus just, oh, I'm not a weird hex. It's fun. Like, that FECR company can uh, run to Miami for more money. Gives you a little focus. 
Yeah, a bit like uh, a bit like you. Well, you see that in 1849 for sure. You also see that in games 1846? Like 1890 and 1846. Yep. Just fun when they have low powers versus just I'm 1830. I exist somewhere, but I'm the exact same as every other company. Just pick a company. They're all the same. Just map. Only difference. Exactly. So what's your number two, man? My number two is the heavyweight of the bunch clocking in at around 30 pounds. Uh, we're talking about Isaac Childress's masterpiece, Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven, the nine, that of 99 adventures that you can play a lifetime, and eh, you'll probably be sick of it after 99 times. But we aren't yet. We're still deep into it. This is something my family has dove in headfirst on, and we have played by far not enough, and we're just kind of getting to the good part. So Isaac Childress's Gloomhaven, my number two game of all time. It's so good. I can't wait to have a family sometime and buy this game used for cheap and just play through it. It's going to be fun. I'm going to blow the dust off of it. It'll be sweet. <laughs> My number one game was featured on your list. Age of Steam. I'm not going to go over it the same because the reasons you gave are the exact same as mine. For me, Age of Steam is like the perfect blend of my financial wing of games that I like. Really mean games where you can be really mean to each other and the game's also really mean to you. And kind of Euro-y auction-y actions merged into one game. Because I don't think people talk about it enough, but like Age of Steam is kind of just it's like an, an auction auction-y game. Euro worker placement game. You know, like that's that's kind of it. Plus, it has a little bit of financials, but it's more or less bookkeeping financials, not necessarily like raising capital. And then it's just mean. It's just I love this game. And now that it has a pretty addition, I'm so happy that I didn't sleep on this Kickstarter. Like, I feel like when we first started this thing, like I was looking at Age of Steam being like, oh, it's fine that they reprinted it, but whatever. It's no big deal. I love the new edition. The new e- Eagle Griffin Games edition is just amazing. Yep. Oh, I absolutely love how it turned out. I had the old version and now I don't. Why would you need it? No, for sure. What's your number one, my dude? My number one could not be more different than Gloomhaven in terms of size and scope. It's a card game. And that card game is Teach You, the four person team game of laddering where you try to go out before the other person take as many points as you can but there is a ton of strategy and how you do that and definitely rewards both good team play and repeat play to sort of know what what's good and what's not and how to signal your partner i understand completely why people love bridge for a lot of the same reasons i'm sure and this is a game that is also number one because this is the game that my family wants to play more than anything else so anytime there's a gaming opportunity the first thing that pops up is can we play teach you and that's always my starting point that's awesome i'm jealous because this game's so great but it's so group dependent and getting i think that's why it's the bridge comparison is perfect do you want to have a teach you night with teach you people about teach you you have that living in your house and it won't be as good of experience if one of the people at the table is kind of a newbie because they're just that level of play will not be at the same place exactly so those are our top five games overall again for a longer recap if you want to go back and listen to episode 47 48 and get a bigger taste for what we really like that'd be the place to go so anyway that is a take on who the gaming moguls are who we are and what our podcast is about. And if you want to discuss this, that, or anything else, ideas for the podcast, disagreements with topics that we bring up, or agreements on topics that coupons. we bring up. We take coupons, coupons as well. Sure. Yeah, we'll if anything. you have some online promo Gifts, codes cash. that you'd love to share with us, uh, credit card numbers, we'll take them. Yeah. Yeah. Pictures of yourself, <laughs> selfies, we'll take anything. Yeah, I don't care. I, I have no taste. I'll take it all. Whoa, 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 whoa. We do not. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for with selfies there, Jake. Oh, well, I'll take them, man. That's fine. Okay. Selfies send to uh, Jake at GamingMoguls.com. Uh, no selfies to Mark at GamingMoguls.com. Got it. 
Oh, what did we just open? I don't know, whatever. But those are emails. Reach out to them. They forward to both of our personal emails. So we check them very often. The place that we probably post most, which we have not been posting recently, is Twitter or Instagram, pardon me. And that is just Gaming Moguls. Just search Gaming Moguls, no space. They pop up. On Twitter, we're Gaming Moguls, all one word. And then we're Guild 3431 on BGG. Love to get some more activity rolling on the BGG Guild. That's not something that we check a lot, but you know, it's something that uh, certainly I think there's uh, still meat on that bone. We're both subscribed to all, every single post that happens on there. I, I get, but I there's just not a lot. I don't know. I, I'm on BGG, but I don't talk on BGG a lot. I check BGG all the time. I'm the same. The same, but it's more of a game database versus a forum for me. Correct. A community. So please feel free to reach out to us at any time. I think uh, we're very, very good at responding to people quickly, assuming we see your message. Yes, if we see it, we'll respond to you nearly instantly. So uh, again, love to have those conversations with you if you see fit. Speaking of online communities, I am trying to be less present on the internet this upcoming year. My work kind of suffers because I'm one of those people that has to read everything online. So I've left some online spaces. So if you want to talk to me, I'm still around. Just email me, shoot me a Twitter message. I'm around everywhere. Absolutely. I'm pretty present online too. And so we can be reached any place at any time. So that is episode 50. Hard to believe it's been 50 episodes already, Jake. I know. Here's to 50 more, my man. I need to go back and binge listen some weekend. Wouldn't that be great? Awful. I feel like that'd be just a road to nar- narcissism. <laughs> I listen to me constantly fill my house with mirrors. Well, that wraps things up for episode 50. Uh, for the gaming moguls, I'm Mark. And I'm Jake. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls Podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.